Do me a favor, uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 7 through to 12. Um, I hope it wasn't a surprise to you that we're still in 2 Corinthians. I have no idea how long this series is going to go, so I'm just going to confess that. I looked again recently at my whiteboard, and according to this very ambitious outline I made like six months ago, we should be like done with the book by now. So I just erased the outline because... I've given up on that ambition. I'm, I'm going to confess to you this. You're probably aware of it if you've heard me preach for any length of time. I am not good at illustrations. I am not cool with coming up with props to bring up on the stage with me. So here's what's probably never going to happen is that you're going to walk in and I'm going to walk up with a beach ball or something like that and go, loving Jesus is like filling up a beach ball. Um, first of all, because I can't figure out how those two things correlate. Uh, second of all, because I am not actually creative enough to come up with anything like that. Um, not because there's anything wrong with teaching in that way, but because I am just like a stick-in-the-mud, uncreative individual. Except for last week, if you were with us, the Lord saw fit to provide me with an illustration because all of our power went out right at the beginning of my sermon. Uh, and if you weren't here, um, let me just tell you where we came from textually because it's going to have bearing on what we talk about tonight. So last week we walked through uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 and in it Paul sort of begins to explain why it is that he doesn't despair in the face of incredible difficulty in his life. Why it is that he doesn't give up in the face of opposition and criticism and conflict and oppression and imprisonment. What it is that carries and sustains him through these experiences. And he really gives these two different things that are sort of interconnected in terms of what carries him. He says that he has this ministry that God has given him. Later on, he's going to describe what that ministry is. And we'll get to that text in a few weeks. It is the ministry of reconciliation. He says, having this ministry... We do not lose heart. And so the first thing that keeps Paul from giving up when I think all circumstances imply that you should give up is the task before him. Paul looks at this charge to carry the gospel to people who have not heard it, to share the good news of what God has done in Jesus. And he says, in light of what God has charged me with, I cannot give up. I cannot surrender. I cannot give in. And so this is one of the pillars that upholds him, keeps him from losing heart. The task is too great. But the second thing is related to the first because he's been given this ministry by the mercy of God. And when you read the rest of Paul's letters, you see that the mercy of God is the fuel for almost everything Paul does. He'll say in Romans, in view of God's mercy, present yourself as a living sacrifice because it's God's mercy that fuels Paul to carry on even when things look horrendous. And they certainly are looking horrendous as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. And so he says these two things, keep me going, the ministry of reconciliation and the mercy of God in my life. And he begins to answer a question that I think many of us ask in our day and age, but the Corinthians certainly asked it when they wrote this letter to Paul or when Paul wrote this letter to them, rather. And the question is, well, that's all well and fine, fine that you have this ministry of reconciliation, whatever that might mean. But if what you're teaching is really true, if this gospel that you're preaching is actually how things are, if it is the answer to the longing in the human soul, why don't more people buy it? Like if this is really, really the truth, why is it so hard for people to swallow? And we probably ask this question, I know that we ask this question in our day-to-day -day lives even now. If this is really the way things are, why do so few people 
accept it? Why is it so hard for culture to gaze at this and see the truth and the glory that is really there? And we respond in some interesting ways. Um, Normally, I think in our day and age, the response is, well, there's a problem with the message. There's just some things about this gospel that we modern enlightened intellectuals just can't swallow. And so we sand down the edges so that it'll be more palatable for modern folk. We take out this, this little bit about sin. That's, that's silly. Uh, you know, in judgment, who believes in judgment? We don't want to be judgmental. Jesus said, judge not. And, um, and blood, blood atonement for people's sin. And we start to just sort of sand it down thinking that the reason that the gospel is not accepted in our world is because of the content of the gospel. Well, the Corinthians are saying that to Paul. They're saying that the, the reason that this hasn't gone forward in power and that you're being opposed is what you're saying. And Paul's response is, the problem is not the message, the problem is the hearer of the message. And so he actually makes this statement, which is a little bit shocking, maybe. He says that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, when Paul says God of this world, that's sort of a slang term for Satan. You'll notice in your Bible that God is not capitalized because he's not actually talking about God, uh, but he's talking about the way that the world honors uh, the powers and the principalities and the ethics of the demonic over and against the true God of this world. And so what Paul ultimately says is the reason the gospel is not accepted is at least in part because of a spiritual deficiency within the people who reject it. It's not the message that people reject because of the message itself. It's because they can't see it for what it is because there's a spiritual reality at work. And so no matter how much you sort of uh, mess with the secret formula of this Krabby Patty of the gospel, it's not going to be something that people like. And there's only going to come a point where you've messed with it so much that this remedy to man's sin can't save anymore. There's going to come a point where you've so twisted and distorted and contorted in the hopes that people will accept it that you've undone the very power of God unto salvation. But this leads to a natural question. I think. Well, this is where we're at, right? If, if, we can't, if we can't even see who God is because we are so blinded spiritually to it, how does anybody become a Christian? Like, if this is how things are, how does anybody get it if we're really blind? Because um, I don't know of any folks who have visual impairments that have just rubbed their eyes into being able to see. And Paul answers that question. He says, the God who said... Let light shine out of the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul begins to reach into creation in Genesis 1 to answer this question. Well, if people are blind and can't see, how does anybody accept the gospel? And he reaches back to the language of Genesis 1. And if you're not familiar with it, maybe it's your first time in church or whatever. um, What we're told is that God creates the cosmos by speaking. And one of the first things that God says as he is creating the cosmos is, let there be light. And what Paul is saying here is the God who spoke light into existence in creation has spoken light into your heart as he makes you a new creation so that you can see who Jesus is. The God of creation is the God who is beginning a new work in the hearts of the people who love him and know him. But here's what that means. You didn't rub your eyes hard enough to be able to see. 
The reality is that the only reason, if you're in this room and you would say, I'm a Christian, I've placed my faith in the Lord, the only reason you are there is because God spoke to your heart and said, let there be light so that you could see Christ and his cross and his empty tomb for what it truly is, which means you and I have no grounds for arrogance or boasting or pride because your salvation beginning to end has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the work of the Lord. The great thing about last week was that the whole room was totally dark via power outage until I got to this passage, and then let there be light. Super cool. I was really tempted to take credit for it and say that I came up with it. It's like my one good illustration per like three or four years, but that wasn't me. That was Providence. Um, and it's with all this in mind, and we need to keep this in mind. I'm not just recapping our, last, our sermon last week to fill space. Because what Paul is about to say in this text, 7 through 12, is in direct uh, correspondence with what he just said in 1 through 6. So with all this in mind, we come to our text for the day. It is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through to 12. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I mentioned this when we started this series, which was months and months ago now, so you may not remember. But as we walk through 2 Corinthians, there's going to be sections of this book that sound really, really familiar to you, especially if you grew up in sort of evangelical Christian culture. You're going to hear that and go, I saw that on a coffee mug. I saw that on like a doormat. I've seen that in somebody's Facebook banner with a really bad font across like somebody throwing their arms out and worshiping in a meadow. Uh, it's going to sound familiar to you. <laughs> and I think it's actually good. I'm just, I'm deeply convinced that preaching verse by verse through scripture is the best way to teach it because all these little platitudes that seem really good on a Facebook banner are even more glorious when you see the verses that came before and after them. And if you grew up in the church... The first four or five words of verse 7, which is we're going to spend most of our time, that's super familiar to you. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, if you don't grow up in the church or you didn't grow up in the church and you have no idea what I'm talking about, late 2000s uh, or late 90s, early 2000s, we're not in the late 2000s yet, um, there was this very famous Christian band called Jars of Clay uh, that was like, they were like, the jam, I guess. They were like, I don't, I don't know what to compare them to um, because I didn't really listen to music in the late 90s, so I didn't ever listen to Jars of Clay. But they were a big deal. They had this sort of crossover appeal. Uh, they, they were like on billboard charts that weren't just Christian charts, which is rare. Christian music almost never breaks the bubble, except for maybe a few instances. Uh, and, and they were just a, a phenomenon in many ways. They had double platinum records. They had Grammys. They had Dove Awards. Now, I'm going to do incredible damage to my evangelical credibility by telling you that when Corey and I were talking about this text this week, I realized that I didn't know a single Jars of Clay song. Uh, and so I just started humming songs and going, is that Jars of Clay? No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Is that Jars of Clay? No. 
Mm, that, yeah, that's a Jars of Clay song. Um, so you may hear that and you may question my salvation. You may question whether I know the Lord at this point. But I actually think that you're probably in a better space if you don't immediately associate this phrase with that band. Because when all we think about when we hear Jars of Clay is rock band, we miss something incredibly significant about what Paul is saying in this text. And my hope is that in spending most of our time tonight on verse 7, we would begin to sort of um, deprogram Jars of Clay, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that you would see the incredible power behind what Paul is saying here when he uses this image. So there's three questions that we will be asking for uh, the rest of the evening. The first question that we want to ask is, what's in the jar? What is in this jar of clay? So there's a movie that came out 10, 15 years ago, had Brad Pitt, who you may know is playing attractive people in every movie he's in, uh, and also had Morgan Freeman, who you may know is playing God in a bunch of movies. Uh, And the movie is called Seven. And Seven follows these two detectives who are pursuing this serial killer. And it ends with this scene in a field, the sort of field where you would like post scripture references across if it were your Facebook banner. Um, And the two detectives are there and this box is delivered and one of them opens the box and sees what's in it and he's horrified and the other one keeps going, what's in the box? Come on, what's in the box? And you can hear Brad Pitt saying it in your head right now if you've seen the movie. But we have to ask this question, what is in the jar? Because you see jar of clay, but the object of this text is not the jar. It is the content of the jar. We say, or we read here that we have this treasure in jars of clay. Well, why is the treasure in jars of clay? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God. So the question is, what's in the jar? And the answer is in verse 6. And let me read verse 6 through to verse 7 for you unbroken. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I grew up in the church-ish. Like I grew up going to a Christian school and I grew up attending church a couple Sundays a month at least and attending more Sundays as I got older. And so evangelism was sort of a thing that I always had in my peripheral vision. Um, But five, six, seven years old, when somebody says, tell your friends about Jesus, uh, that doesn't come with any sort of like evangelistic method. That doesn't come with any sort of apologetics. So I was super zealous, but I was wicked stupid in the way that I would talk to my friends about Jesus. And I grew up in this neighborhood that was a typical Brandon neighborhood, which was, it was a little bit sketchy, but generally speaking, totally cool. And I knew of one kid in my neighborhood who didn't know Jesus, and his name was Tony, and he lived at the middle of our circular loop of a neighborhood. And so I would ride my bike down to Tony's house, and I would come up with different evangelistic methods of how to get Tony to be a Christian. And the worst of them that I can remember was that one day I rode down to his side of the neighborhood and I saw Tony playing basketball and I said, this is my chance. And so I started playing basketball with Tony, but before every shot that I made, I would stop and I would close my eyes and I would mumble some sort of a prayer and then I would shoot the ball. And if it went in, I would say to Tony, see, I made that shot because I'm a Christian. You should be a Christian too. (laughs) When I didn't make the shot, I wouldn't say anything. 
And if you consider where my life would have ended up if I followed that trajectory, it would have been some sort of like prosperity gospel type thing. So grace of God delivering six-year-old Travis from heresy. Um, <laughs> but I think I'd sort of imbibed something that was, was, was really present in our day and age and culture because it seems like the temptation for you and I, especially as the culture continues to move in a more post-Christian direction, is that we try to sell Christianity uh, based on its benefits. We try to sell it pragmatically. So we say things like, man, if you want to have a better marriage, you should really come to my church and be a Christian because if you, if you really look at what the Bible says and you're a Christian, your marriage is going to go better. Or, man, are, are you really struggling with having like a difficult life and being down in the dumps? Man, when I became a Christian, my life just got so much better. Or, man, maybe you're trying to raise a kid and uh, somebody says something to the effect of, well, man, if you really want to raise that kid with structure so they've got good morals and they don't turn out to be crazy, raise them in the church so that they can grow up with structure. And so what seems to happen is in probably a more sophisticated way, we try to sell Christianity based on the benefits, like a better marriage, like more structure in your kids' lives, like something to do with your Sunday morning, like a quick way to dunk on Tony at the end of Marfil Loop. We try to sell it based on those things, as though those things are the treasure of Christianity, a better marriage and structure for your kids and the ability to ball out. But that's not what Paul says is the treasure of the Christian life. What does Paul say the treasure is that we have in jars of clay? It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the treasure of the Christian life. What Christianity gives to the world is the knowledge of God. Not just five steps to a better marriage, not just structure for your child's life, but it gives us the knowledge of who God is and what he is like and what he has done so that we may truly know him and that he might know us, and that through the Spirit of God, and the Word of God, and the Church of God, day by day, through the whole of our lives, we might know him better until our faith becomes sight. That is the treasure of Christianity. In jars of clay, it is the knowledge of God. Now, there are implications for that, because the more that you know him, the more that you will be like him. And the more that these other peripheral aspects of your life will change and the nature of your relationship to your spouse or who you're dating, that's going to change. And the way that you parent your children is going to change. The way that you dunk on Tony at the end of 652 Marfil Loop is going to change. I just gave out my parents' address in a sermon. That was a bad idea. <laughs> but, but the treasure of Christianity is not all of these peripheral side things. It is the fact that through the Christian life, you might know God. So what's in the jar? The knowledge of God and who he is in the face of Jesus Christ. Next question we should probably ask is, what is the jar? What is the jar of clay other than a multi-platinum Christian rock band? Nothing. No, I'm kidding. That's not what it is. Um, so a cu couple things to be said here. Um, pretty much unanimous across liberal, conservative, ancient, modern, all the interpreters of this text recognize that when Paul talks about jars of clay, he's talking about people. He's talking about human beings. Uh, because when we look at Genesis, we're told that man is made from the dust of the ground, the clay of the earth he is formed. And so when Paul talks about jars of clay, he's saying that this knowledge of God, this glorious truth in the Christian life of who God is and what he's done, it has been placed in the hearts of people. But why doesn't he just say that? Because that, that, I mean, that would certainly make things easier. 
Why does he use this metaphor of jars of clay? Well, the reality is that if we're going to grasp this like the Corinthians grasped it, we need to do a little bit of like archaeology, so to speak. So I don't have any cool slides of archaeological places or things like that. Um, But here's what you need to know is that in the ancient world, clay pottery was unimpressive. It was fragile. It was unimportant. It was easily replaced. So every city in the ancient Near East where people lived, we found, we find clay pots and they're always broken and they're cast aside. They're just not important. They were just common in everyday life. And if you walked down the side of the road and saw a clay pot, whether it was broken or whole, nobody would think much of it. So one commentator actually says that they were kind of like the ancient world's equivalent of like McDonald's wrappers or fast food wrappers. Or if you were to walk down King's Avenue and see a McDonald's wrapper, your first thought would not be, I wonder what's inside that. (laughs) One, because you know what's inside that, like a quarter pound of cheesy goodness. Um, But two... Because it's just unimportant. It's, it's almost trash. It is unimpressive. It would be very different if you walked down King's Avenue and you saw some gold vase or some sort of like a, a lamb's wool satchel or something strange like that. You would go, oh, I wonder what's in there. But in the ancient world, jars of clay are fragile. They are fragmented. They are easily breakable. And they crumble under pressure very quickly. And this is the point that Paul is making, is he's saying that God has chosen to take the knowledge of himself, to to take the very reality of who he is and what it means to know him, and to place it in the hearts of fragile, broken, easily damaged people. And Paul's life is a perfect example of that. He's persecuted, he's hated, he's despised, he's rejected. Paul is almost saying in this letter, I am the jar of clay just like you are the jar of clay. And this glorious, earth-shattering reality is placed in something fragile and something that appears to be slight and unimportant in the eyes of the world. Now, you may hear that, and you may think, well, that certainly sounds like a theology of negativity. That sounds really discouraging. That sounds like Paul wants us to just think about how much we suck and how quickly we are broken. And I don't think Paul wants us to be negative, but I think Paul wants us to be realistic about the fact that we break and fracture easily. One of my favorite Christian songwriters, not because every song is good, but because the the lyrical content is so rich, is this man named Rich Mullins. Uh, Rich Mullins has this song that he wrote after the breakup of a relationship that he had with a girl in college. It was the only girl that he ever dated. And the song is called, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. And in the second verse of the song, he says this, The master said that faith was going to make mountains move, but I tremble like a hill on a fault line at the thought of how I've lost you. We are not as strong as we think we are. We are frail, but we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I'm inclined to think Paul would agree with everything that Rich just said there. And I'm inclined to think that because of what he says about himself and about each of us, that we are easily damaged, easily broken. But in spite of our brokenness and our fragility, God has taken the most important knowledge in the history of the cosmos and placed it in cracked vessels such as you and I. The third question that we should probably ask is, why would God do that? A couple years ago, I decided for the folks on leadership team here at this ministry that I was going to get them thank you presents around Christmas. 
Uh, and I'm going to confess to everybody on the leadership team and everybody in this room, I didn't really think about what the leadership team would want as thank you presents. I just said, what do I think is really cool <laughs> that I would want? <laughs> and so then I just bought them a bunch of books that I thought were sick and that I would want to get as a present. So it was not a very good present. It was not a very thoughtful present. I repent of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but at the time, I was like, this is sick. I'm the best pastor ever. <laughs> And I began, to, I began to think about it, and I was like, man, I've got this stack of leather-bound books that smell of rich mahogany, and I can't just give it to them in, like, a public bag. I can't just, like, hand them the stack and go, here you go, man, have fun. So, where do you go when you want to make things look aesthetically pleasing? Pinterest. So, I get on Pinterest, and I start looking up all of the the most attractive, like, robust, artsy, craftsy sort of ways that I can wrap up this stack of books because I think that what I'm wrapping is important and the wrapping should signify its importance. And for you guys who are in relationships and getting ready to propose, I pity you because that concept has been sort of extrapolated to romantic relationships. It's not enough to get on one knee and pop the ring anymore because that has to be wrapped up in something that matches your affections and wanting to marry this girl. Watch YouTube, grow discouraged. You've got, a lot, you've got a lot that's up against you. But, but we, think, we think this way, right? If something's really that important, we wrap it up in something that shows its importance. So why is it that God takes the knowledge of himself and puts it in something insignificant and slight and broken and fractured such as human beings and people like Paul? Paul answers that question saying that we have this treasure, this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he begins this list of uh, descriptions of his own weakness. Uh, and you may be familiar with this. There's a pretty popular worship song from the 90s that cites this verse exactly. We are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed but not driven to despair. We are persecuted but not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed. So Paul acknowledges, I am fragile, I am weak, I am fractured. And then he begins to list the different ways in which that is true. And the reason that God does this is so that nobody can say, I came to Christ because of a powerful public speaker. So that nobody can say, I came to Christ because of the ribbons and the bows and the aesthetically pleasing attractiveness of the way that that message was wrapped up. So that nobody can say, I came to Christ because Paul convinced me. The reason that God does this is so that the Corinthians and you and I can look at the brokenness of Paul and say, we came to Christ because the gospel was true. And it didn't matter what it was wrapped up in because it was the power of God unto salvation, not Paul's good looks or his charming speech or his persuasiveness or his apologetic arguments. The gospel comes to us in broken jars of clay so that there will be no question of where the power comes from and where saving faith comes from. It comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. And the reality is that this actually has, I think, some really profound practical implications. Because I, again and again and again over the last five to 10 years, have watched friend after friend after friend walk away from Christ. And not all of them, but many of them 
have been deeply wounded by things that have happened in the church. Their pastor succumbs to adultery, and they say, well, if he's a piece of crap like that, I don't buy anything that he said. Prominent evangelical leader drifts out of orthodoxy into something else, and people walk with him out of the way. And maybe you find yourself in that circumstance that you've been let down by religious leaders, you've been let down by your favorite public theologian, you've been let down by your favorite worship leader, your pastor has done something to wound or grieve you, but I just want you to hear me when I say this and hear Paul when he says this. The truthfulness of the gospel is not dependent on the mouthpiece from which it comes, it is dependent on the power of God. And that is why God uses broken people with crooked tongues and fractured teeth to proclaim something that is utterly true so that you cannot say the gospel's not true because Stevie, my old pastor, sucks. The New Testament anticipates that. Paul says, I do suck. Things are awful. I am a broken, fractured vessel. But the knowledge of the glory of God shines through even the cracks and the fractures of my life. I think that is a glorious reality. And let me plead with you. I mean, if you left the church because you were disappointed in your pastor or in some person that you looked up to, hear Paul clearly here that the truthfulness of the gospel doesn't depend on whether or not they keep it all together. It depends wholly beginning to end on the God who saves. And we have that treasure in jars of clay You and I, fractured, fragmented, broken people that God has chosen to instill with the knowledge of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. And this seems to me to be the way that God has always worked. He raises up Moses who is a murderer, uh, who has some form of a speech impediment to deliver a people out of slavery. He raises up Gideon and an army and he whittles down all of Gideon's enormous army so that there can be no question that it's not Gideon's military cunning that delivers the people of Israel. He raises up fishermen from the shores of Galilee who are uneducated and social rejects and they step out and change the entirety of the world. He is always in the business of taking common, fractured, fragmented things and using them to expound glorious truths and realities. 